Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reservations. I'm your host, Rain Whalen. And I'm Jeremy Blair. Uh, now, before we get started, uh, me and Jeremy just wanted to briefly talk about the terrible incident that happened yesterday of a active shooter in the Midland Odessa area of which Jeremy and I both live. Right. Um, it happened about, uh, I may be over-exaggerating, but about... 100 yards away from me uh, at the, the Best Buy I work in Odessa. Um, and then I got a, a notification on Facebook that uh, one of my old teachers from Goddard Junior High had been killed in the shooting. So, uh, yeah, so I just want to, we just want to take a moment to really kind of like let everyone know that if you know anyone that was affected, like we hope that everything was okay and that you're like we're thinking about you and you're in our prayers i don't really know what to say because i never had to give a, a right. psa this is, before yeah this is this is odd you know we didn't think we'd ever have to deal with a mass shooting incident right um you know me and ashley mentioned how you know we read about these things on the news and you know you never think like oh that that would never happen yeah. here right until it does yeah, and, and I mean, just a shout out to first responders and um, everyone who helped with get the situation under control. And I like to give a special shout out to Jay Hendricks, um, Channel Seven News. Mm-hmm. That dude's a rock star, man. I mean, he kept his mic on. They were asked to leave twice uh, during the incident because they're in the mall, which I've always thought that was so odd. Oh, that they put CBS Seven in the mall. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if it's the opposite. I wonder if they were already there and the mall grew around them. I have no idea. Probably not. I don't know. But, I mean, um, I heard it's something. I mean, we're kind of getting a little off topic. Well, anyway, no, I mean, it's but not it's, because, it's, you know. Since, yeah, I know, I, I know they had to evacuate the right, mall. Right, yeah, they had to evacuate the mall and um, cops were telling them, you know, get out, you know. And um, Jay kept his mic on. He was still trying to give us up-to-date information of what was going on. Man, and then, he had to do it twice. Yeah, so. and then they got him to, to Big Spring to yeah. – uh, yeah, um, but yeah, you know we, you know we really hope that everyone was safe out there, um, especially for those who live in Odessa and were like myself around the area where it was actually happening. Yeah, I was just at home in Midland. I mean, I wasn't near any of it. So yeah, you know, and me and all my coworkers at Best Buy, we were in the shit, literally a hundred yards away from us in the Bubba's parking lot, and if you know what i'm talking about you can kind of visualize that distance so we just hope everyone was okay and safe and uh that we're we're thinking about you so we are now going to trying to unawkwardly segue into uh, today's episode um maybe this will give everyone a little kind of break from also it our top of the show will explain why we are not as prepared as we usually are. Mm-hmm. I, I was in the I was in the middle of about I was about to change um, movies mm-hmm. uh, to to start watching another one for this episode, and then you know I saw all that stuff on Facebook and I threw on the news and I was on I was watching for like two three hours after that. Oh yeah, yeah, because so, that's you know I was just to make sure everything's okay. Oh yeah, I mean and. I was going to watch one of the movies on my list, uh, but when I finally left work at 6.30 and had to take a 45-minute route home, uh, right. I was like, I'm yeah, really was, not in the mood to watch yeah, movies right now. Yeah, I get it. 
So but, yeah, it was it was pretty terrible yesterday, <laughs> and you know we're sorry that we have to even talk about it. But yeah, um, but we hope everyone was safe yesterday, yeah. and. Um, Hopefully, maybe this episode can kind of lighten the mood a little bit. So, kind of. I mean, it is drama, but yeah. we'll try our best. <laughs> we are. We will be talking about drama, but so today, um, like uh, like we mentioned in the House of Jack Bill episode, um, today is going to be starting a themed month, which I'm aware that I got my days wrong. A so, bit. we're actually starting this in the middle of September, and it will end in the first week of October, but it'll be a four-part episode. You know, Rain, I actually don't think that's true either because... Did I... Um, am I still missing? It'll be on the 3rd, so, I mean, it'll be the 3rd, the 10th, the 17th, and the 24th. I think we're all right. Oh, well yeah. then, okay, maybe my math is enough. But anyway, but it'll be a four-part episode um, of me and Jeremy discussing or... Uh, wait... Your mom doesn't like that. Jeremy and I. There you go. Uh, discussing genres of the 80s and um, kind of like what we did with the horror movie episode. Kind of talking about the films to us that really stood out uh, in drama. Yeah. Well, Jeremy has already said uh, the kind of movies he's going to mention. Yeah, uh, I just, yeah, I, I'm pushing it with at least one of these being a drama movie, but it's fine. <laughs> I'm I'm fine with it, so it's not a big deal. To me, these were the standout hits of the 1980s. To me, in terms of drama, right? Well, and I did I did was doing a little research too. I wasn't unprepared for this episode. I was doing a little research in our in our week break, but um, I did I did notice a steadily increase or steadily. Yeah, as otherwise, steadily increase in drama films in the 80s, um, right around, I think, 84, like 84, then 85, 86, 87, there's just this, all these drama films. Mm-hmm. And then about 87 downward, it, it almost seemed like dramas kind of faded out in the 80s. Um, I honestly don't know what could have caused why people in the 80s were feeling more dramatic than they were towards the end. Um, I mean, by 85, we the Cold War was already over, wasn't it? Listen, man, <laughs> I don't know why you're dragging me into this, because uh, I disagree. I think that... Um, I think the the drama still held on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, throughout. Yeah, I mean, because it's, you know, it's not the the escapist films of the 1930s to distract people from the depression. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. I think that maybe the list you were looking at was, you know, um, you know, they, they were leaving off some, you know, maybe, I I don't know. I mean, or maybe I just, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, which is probably, I usually do that, but, um, that's accurate. (laughs) So, uh, so we're going to discuss drama films. Uh, I figured, you would do one, then I would do one, sure. or because I feel like if you know, if we just tell everyone everything, it'll... oh yeah, no, 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 that's not. How I wanted. <laughs> it was probably going to be more like the the horror movie episode, but probably not as long. Yeah, you know, we're going to try to keep it. Yeah, not we'll, as we'll long. try to keep it under <laughs> three hours. Yeah, but uh, that would be best. Well, then I will. I will let you go first, my friend. Okay, like, great. Um, the only movie I rewatched and took notes on. <laughs> Because it was yesterday during all this fiasco, um, was the King of Comedy. So I, I recently just heard about this film. Yeah. Uh, 
in that it was one of two Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese films used as inspiration for the new Joker film. Yeah. But anyway. It, right. Um, right. So I, I have been reading a lot of those Joker reviews, and a lot of them are stating it's like King of Comedy, it's like Taxi Driver. Buckle up. You know? Mm-hmm. And I can't wait uh, for that. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about <laughs> The King of Comedy. 1982, Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, Martin Scorsese at the helm. This movie is awesome. I love this movie. It really captures what it's like for someone to suffer from these delusions of grandeur, mm-hmm. right? Um, the movie is about Rupert Pumpkin. Pumpkin. It's not <laughs> pumpkin. It's pumpkin. Pumpkin. Right? It's yeah. It's <laughs> it's quite a name. Anyway, uh, he is a aspiring stand-up comedian. Okay. And his dream in life is to be on this Johnny Carson type talk show mm-hmm. and meet Jerry. Jerry's played by Jerry Lewis. That's funny. <laughs> Different last name. I didn't write down the last name, therefore I don't remember it. So anyway, <laughs> um, but I didn't write down Rupert Pupkin either. That's just a bonus. Okay. So anyway, um, it. And he is desperately trying to get on the show, mm-hmm. so much so that he gets a friend of his to jump into his car after a taping. Okay. And playing the hero of getting her out and pushing everyone back so he can get in his car. And Rupert goes right behind him and in the car. And as he traps him, <laughs> corners him really in this car, uh, he asks for advice. You know, I'm a stand up comedian. Want to get on the show? How do I do it? Right? Okay. And from that interaction that Jerry is obviously weirded out, he's uncomfortable, you can see this. Mm-hmm. Rupert can't. Right? To them, they're having a casual conversation among peers, right? Among equals. And that's not how Jerry is For- seeing this. Obviously, it... Right. Reality is no, they're not. Right. Right. And so after this interaction, um, we get one of many fantasy sequences that are shot like it's reality. By that, what I mean is that we'll cut to a scene from Rupert and Jerry having that conversation in the car with them having a conversation in his office about what an inspiration and how talented Rupert is and how, you know, I can't believe you become so successful. Here this is. But then we'll cut from there to Rupert having this conversation by himself in, in his living space. The reason I say living space is because he lives with his mom in the basement. Right. Okay. (laughs) And the basement is set up to look like the set of this talk show. By the way, with cardboard cutouts of Jerry and Liza Minnelli, which is a little shout out to New York, New York, Uh, uh, which Scorsese also directed with um, Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli, yeah. That's funny. Um, And Liza was set to be in the movie as a cameo, but her part was cut and they just kept the cardboard cutout. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so it's really interesting. And I. And it makes me so uncomfortable because mm. I've done this. I have had imaginary 
you know, talk show appearances where I'm the guest and I'm talking to, you know, um, I'm, I'm talking to Conan. You know? I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure we all have. I mean, yeah. I, know, I know I definitely have, you know, having like a, a conversation with, you know, Fallon. Yeah. About like, yeah, you know, so. And that's the difference between us. I choose Conan, you choose Fallon. And that's, well, <laughs> that's a big difference. I, I've also had I like the, the fantasies of having uh, conversations with uh, Sam Jones on his podcast mm-hmm. off camera. Yeah. So it alternates. Between I've, I've done the same with like Pete Holmes on his, on, you know, his it's, it's, it's so stupid. But it, it shows you how stupid you're being when you're doing this and what it looks like from the outside. Yeah. On the inside, you're not, you know. Yeah, you're you're, you're visualizing. You're, you're sitting, in the fantasy, right? But yeah. looking at it from the outside, it's like that guy looks like a lunatic. Oh yeah, right. And which means I've looked like a lunatic <laughs> hundreds of times because <laughs> I've done this so many times, and so it really focuses on that aspect, right? And it's and it's so brilliant. So the movie continues with him trying so hard to get on the show. Okay. Um. By recording his material, by giving it to the producer, the producer saying, you know, it's good, but it's not there yet. Call us when you've done a little more work. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like that, right? He, <laughs> uh, his then wife, uh, Robert De Niro, uh, is in the movie. Uh, she is the, if you've seen Taxi Driver, she is the um, snack bar lady at the porno theater. <laughs> And in this one, she's the bartender and uh, they go out on dates and it's and you think maybe this is a fantasy. It ends up not being one. OK. And so they really are having this relationship. And you're like, that's super weird because he's weird. And I don't know why she doesn't see that. And whatever. Uh, he ends up saying that he is such good friends with Jerry that he has invited them to his vacation home <laughs> and they drive to his vacation home. Huh. I'm not done. They get into his vacation home. Uh, one of his servants is like, well, Jerry's not here. He goes, oh, that's okay. He's probably golfing. You know, we'll just hang out here. We were invited, I promise. Dude calls up Jerry. Like, hey, man, there's these people in your house, and they said that you invited them. And I know that's not true because blah, 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 blah. You know, and he's freaking out, right? Jerry shows up, and he goes, what the hell? Who? Are, why are you here? You know, he knows who Rupert is at this point. Right. And he's like, you're psycho. Get out of my house. Right. And <laughs> so then we get the girl to realize something's something's up. Right. This guy's really not seeing reality the way we do. Right. He interprets every interaction as positive and as, you know, you're doing great. You're the best I've ever seen when they're really saying, get out of my house. I never want to see you again. Right. Right. And eventually he kidnaps Jerry with the friend uh, played by Barbara Stanwyck. I think that's her name. Um, And they kidnap Jerry. They hold him for ransom so Rupert can get on the show. (laughs) It works. He gets on the show. Right. Okay. Here's the most insane part about this entire movie is that once he gets on, every time we're seeing him about to do his act, uh-huh. it cuts right before he starts, right? And so we never really get to see his act. We assume it's bad because he's out of his mind, right? right? When the taping is over, which we don't get to see the act, we get a, we get to see him start, and then it cuts, and then he's done, right? Okay. 
They walk him to a bar because the final demand he has is we're watching this in the bar. We're watching this on TV. And they go to this bar. They let him watch it. He's good. He's actually good. He's Mm. getting laughs. His timing is good. His jokes are good. He's good. And so then then you're just like, wait a minute. He was good all the time? Like if he had just put a little more work in, did what they asked... He would have gotten on the show legitimately. You know, it's so odd. Uh-huh. And so then we, which totally messes with our perception of what we thought we were seeing. Right. Okay. We thought we were seeing, I mean, obviously he's psychotic and he's, you know, delusional. Right. But that didn't stop him from being good at stand up. Like he was actually all right. You know? Yeah. And that's the big shock in the movie is that he <laughs> could have gotten in any other way. And. It's it's so strange. I love this movie so much. Robert De Niro gives an amazing performance. I would say it's up there with like Awakenings. You okay. know, it's it's not his tough guy role like he usually does. It's not you know Goodfellas. It's not Casino. It's you know it's it's sort of like a, a new sort of thing for him, which mm-hmm. he did in Awakenings as well, which is just this vulnerable you know, flawed character and he's great at that. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I highly recommend King of Comedy, nineteen eighty two, the first drive I want to mention. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh so then my first movie, um for for drama, um and I feel like we talked about it a little bit on one episode. I don't remember what episode. Um but it's uh, nineteen eighty four Amadeus. It is our biopic episode. That's right. That's right. Because um, I love this movie. Um, yes. Uh, I what I didn't know what to expect going into this movie the first time I ever watched it. And, like, I should mention, I've only ever seen this movie once. But it has stuck with me so much that I... I remember the entire movie. And I remember... I mean, of course, I don't remember the, the minute details but I remember basic points of the movie as it progresses and I even watched the three hour long director's cut yeah that would be the one I would recommend as oh, yeah, well de- most definitely yeah. um, and I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in the biopic episode but I'm going to mention it again uh, Ashley hates this movie <sighs> such a shame and <laughs> it's because of one line um, I finally got her like it was it was very early on when we started dating and I <sighs> I want to say, like, I had been really wanting to watch it again. And I was like, come on, let's watch it. You'll like it. I know you'll like it. You know, it's 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 a period piece. It's biographical. You- and, and, it, and it's massive. Oh, yeah. It's a massive movie. I mean, um, and his name is Milos Forman. Yes. Uh, he also did One Flew Over. He did Man on the Moon. He did um, The People versus Larry Flint. I mean, the dude does massive movies, man. Oh, yeah. This one is gigantic in just the the scope and the set and just everything about it. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. And and I'd also like to point out before I mention why Ashley really hates this movie is that it's almost like a um, like a a faux history kind of thing. Uh, You know, there's these facts that are true about Mozart's life, but then they've kind of tweaked a couple of them to fit that and the re- reason why Ashley hates this movie is one line and it's when we see uh, Tom Hulse as Mozart and he had just get- 
Uh, he had just given a performance at uh, someone's mansion, and um, he's flirting with... I don't remember the actress's name, but he's flirting with his eventual wife, and um, he's showing her different, like... I don't remember what he's actually doing with her. It's something about the la- like their language and like words, and she doesn't like it. And he's like, you know, well, why don't you like it? And she's like, well, because it's stupid. And Ashley was like, no, done with this movie. They wouldn't have said stupid in the seventeenth uh, century. And was like, was like, <laughs> but, like, well, we still have two and a half whole hours of this movie. Yeah, that's in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, she's like, don't care. I'm done. It might be when we're introduced to who Mozart is, because uh, yeah, Murray Abraham is trying to figure out who it is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, if anyone has, so taking that aside, if anyone ha- uh, doesn't know what this movie is about, it's told through the eyes of F. Murray Abraham's character um, Antonio Sorelli, um, who I have it pulled up. I, I don't. Oh, just remember I, I was it. so impressed. I was like, I don't remember that. I've seen it three times. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, so he, the, the film starts cause he tries to commit suicide and they take him to the, in, uh, the institution and he keeps saying, I killed Mozart, I killed Mozart. And so they send in a priest to figure out why he thinks that, you know, Mozart's been dead for 20 years now. Like why, how did you kill Mozart? And so F. Murray Abraham tells the priest this story of how he made a pact with God. If you can make me a successful musician, I will stay uh, celibate. I will I will glorify you if you can make me a successful musician. And he feels uh, God has upholded that end of the agreement. So he stays celibate. He dedicates his life to God and showing people how to play music until he... Uh, catches wind of a young German prodigy, Amadeus Mozart, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and he hears all these stories about that he's a prodigy. He can he can play the piano blindfolded and this this and that. And it's not till Mozart's well into his twenties when Antonio meets him for the first time and realizes that he is a mediocre. Musician, and that Mozart is a true genius and a true, genuine, just amazing uh, musician. Um, and so he curses God and goes back on his promise because he tries to get with uh, Mozart's girl, <laughs> which I've never seen anything so awkward in my life because I don't, I don't remember. It's because you haven't seen The King of Comedy, by the way. Uh, but continue. Uh, I don't remember what he says to her to get her back to his... Because uh, he has, like, a whole room at the... Because he's living with, like, the the governor of Austria, right? It's like the king of Austria. Yeah. And played by real-life pedophile Jeffrey Jones. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. I remembered he was in the movie, but I forgot his name because... Uh, Jeffrey yeah. Jones. I'm I'm very pissed he's off the... <laughs> that Sweeney is a pedophile. He is, yeah. Which we'll talk about uh, who Sweeney. Oh, it's, no, I said his name wrong. Sweeney. Rooney. Rudy. Rooney. Yeah, Rooney. Rooney. Ah, I'm I'm garbage, and I love that movie. Well, anyway, 
Well, <laughs> that's next week. Uh, anyway, so he he realizes what he's doing with Mozart's girl is wrong because he gets her to take off her top, and he realizes what he's doing is wrong. So he sends her away. And the whole movie, he is essentially kind of stalking Mozart. Mainly, from what I saw, when I first saw it, was he's he, he's learning Mozart. He's learning, like, who he is, what is driving him, um, uh, his creative process, what are his kind of tics. Yeah, you know, I think what, what was his name? Uh, Antonio Sorelli? Sorelli. Sorelli. So what Sorelli truly hates about Mozart is that, number one, he's an absolute genius when it comes to music. But outside of that, he's a buffoon, mm-hmm. right? He is yeah, and I, a I, womanizing idiot. And I love uh, Tom Hulse's laugh. Yeah. The, the, I can't recreate there's no, it. There's no evidence to suggest he did that, but he needed to add something that was so obnoxious, you know, just to really get under... His skin, right? Yeah, and so and everyone's skin. Because it's it, it's a it's a it starts with just a burst. Yeah, it's a shrill sort of burst, high pitched laugh. Yeah. Um, but then you know, uh, I think one of my favorite scenes, especially like seeing the scene parodied, is um, the the scene where Mozart mocks him mm-hmm. without knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're all having a party, and they're challenging Mozart to play. Different types, to, different types of music on the piano, and they're like, "Ah, oh, you can't do it," because he even plays behind his head, mm-hmm. backwards, and then Antonio, who has written music, you know, tells him like, "Oh, why don't you, why don't you play, uh, you know, Sorelli?" And Mozart, not knowing because it's a masquerade ball, mocks him, and and uh, the thing that I really loved about the movie is you know um when they get to when they get to the the part of don uh, don giovanni uh because they're almost suggesting that mozart wrote that opera uh, when his dad died because uh throughout the film you know we see his dad be kind of like this helicopter parent like you have to before there were even helicopters who knew i know an aerial screw. <laughs> and, he, and so, you know, his dad pretty much tells him how to live his life. And you have to be doing this because you're Mozart and you have to do this. And that's not what Mozart wants to do. He just wants to create music and live his life. <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, still loves his dad. <clears throat> that's his dad. And so when he gets word that his dad died, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone, um, he writes the uh, the opera Don Giovanni, which is I've never actually heard Don Giovanni from start to finish. I just know the main sonata that a lot of people know. Um, but then Sorelli uses that because he dresses up like his dad, uh, Mozart's dad, that has he was dressed up at the masquerade ball and visits Mozart. And Mozart thinks he's being haunted by his dad, which is kind of fucked up when you think about it. Um, and then <clears throat> pretty much coerces uh, Mozart into writing his unfinished requiem, 
It's it's still unfinished, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure the the requiem is um is only uh I don't I still think I think it's still locked up. Well, I think Sorelli is a fictional. Yeah, yeah. Character. I, I think so, he's I, mean, I think he's the part of the faux history. Right, yeah, he is. Uh, um, just to get a contrast to Mozart. Right. And so, you know, so he 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 works with Mozart who's clearly sick because at this point Mozart's been working to the bone he's been working on these new operas because Mozart died of some kind of fever right again I don't I don't don't either (laughs) I'm sorry I didn't think I'd be grilled with (laughs) Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart facts uh shit hang on Jesus Uh, yeah because he died at 35 um (laughs) so old I know um, that was a stupid. And idea. apparently, uh, apparently, there's no like set thing about um, how he actually died. Like, there's no. I mean, because you know, it was the 17th century. There was no records, you know. But uh, anyway, um, and so essentially, you know, then we cut back to an older Sorelli who has been telling this tale, and he views himself as like the patron saint of mediocrities because he killed Mozart and uh, and the thing that really like struck me with this is how by the end of this this tale of him telling this young priest his story he uh, he shakes this priest like to his core which is is pretty pretty not necessarily amazing but that he that the story of him viewing someone else as a true genius just really I don't know I loved it yeah I I still think it's fantastic it's <clears throat> it's definitely <clears throat> worth the three hours oh absolutely um, just like Endgame it's worth it three <laughs> hours <laughs> wow um, he compared it to Endgame ladies and, and gentlemen um, of course uh, film one best picture of the year I know um and of course, you know, without, I know, I'm pretty sure the song was written before the movie. The you know the '80s song Amadeus mm-hmm. was uh, by Falco. By, I'm, yeah. I'm aware. Was that was that after the movie or before the movie? I don't know. I'm Again, gonna say it was. I after. didn't think I would be grilled with Falco facts <laughs> in either. Okay, so I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to think it was after because he he wears. Almost like the costume in the yeah, music video. Yeah, he wears the costume, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, it, I mean, it's... I in think the video. It, I don't know, whatever. It, it's... I feel like it, it's just a, a a different kind of drama for the 80s because it... it I don't really remember any period pieces from the 80s that really stand out to me. Right now, at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, now that I've said that, I'm sure there's people like, oh my god... What about... Yeah, Schumacher screaming at his phone right now. I know. Like, you idiots. I mean... Idiot, uh, (laughs) Mr. Schumacher. I didn't say that. (laughs) Well, you know, Mr. Schumacher, you know, me and Jeremy have been uh, shooting around the idea of of doing a whole episode on one of your movies. That's right. We have. Uh, (laughs) Very excited about it, actually. But, uh, But, yeah. So, I mean, it's... I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll agree that nothing on my list is a period piece. 
Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, and I should you took Amadeus, and and I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what Tom Hulse looked like until I saw that movie because I knew he provided the voice of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. My the, favorite Disney movie besides the Goofy movie. And uh, well, the Goofy movie is classic. Well, I know we could do a whole episode about Goofy. Movies. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> um, but like, I, I only knew his voice, and so when I was, I remember watching the movie. I'm like, man, who is this guy? And I look it up, and I was like, oh. Oh, that's that's Quasimodo. I I will tell you. I think he was also not think. I know he was in Animal House, as well. Tom Holtz? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not gonna argue. I mean, I'm. You know, you yeah. know how long it's been since I've seen Animal House. I don't know. It's been long. Anyway, moving on. To, oh, my uh, turn. To, to your next movie. Okay. I'm gonna do a twofer for this one. Um, so they're different in style but similar in theme sort of and so I'll get into that but my next films are Ordinary People okay and Blue Velvet I feel like I've heard of Blue Velvet before oh it's great I love Blue Velvet but we'll get there so the reason I'm putting these two together um, they could be on their own and it's not a big deal alright I'm mm-hmm. putting them together to save time and also I didn't finish my notes because of the thing yesterday. So anyway, um, so Ordinary People focuses on a upper middle class suburban family mm-hmm. grappling with the aftermath of the loss of their oldest son. Okay. But they still have their youngest son, uh, played by Timothy Hutton. Oh, okay. And the mother is played by... <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> I gave that a dramatic pause for no reason. <laughs> it, uh, the mom is played by Mary Tyler Moore. Oh. And at the time, she was a a comedic actress. Okay. Because she had done both The Dick Van Dyke Show and Mary Tyler Moore. Mm-hmm. So, and she gives a powerful performance in this one where she is just bitter and mean and you know, depressed and, you know, just angry. And it's amazing. Okay. Donald Sutherland plays the father and Judd Hirsch plays the therapist. Well, and I, I pulled it up just to see, just, just get a little more information for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robert Redford directed yep. it. Uh, it was his first movie he ever directed, 1980. Really? Yeah. Anyway, as right. you're saying. So the reason I bring up Ordinary People um, and Blue Velvet, because Blue Velvet is about a upper-middle-class, suburban setting okay, hiding really dark secrets, right? Which is something that David Lynch does very, very well. Oh, it's David Lynch. Yeah. Of course, it's David Lynch. So this is basically Twin Peaks. It's like pre-Twin Peaks. So without oh. Blue Velvet, we don't have Twin Peaks. Well, and it also has Colin McLaughlin in it. That's right. Which I was pulling it up. I still haven't seen it. So Kyle McLaughlin is, is, is in Blue Velvet and uh, Laura Dern and Dennis Hopper. It's amazing. So it is about the dark secrets that hides within the white picket fence, you know, in the blue skies and the in the rose bushes, right? Okay. Um, it, it's like walking into the set of Father Knows Best and... <laughs> The dad is, like, uh, raping a showgirl in the back. Well, then. Right? Okay. 
Not everything is what it looks like on the outside. And that's what both of these films bring to the table. Um, in Ordinary People, it's, you know, it's a family who lashes out at each other because they can't deal with the guilt and the grief that they have. And they blame the son and the son blames. I mean, it's crazy, right? Okay. And it's it's so sad. <laughs> the whole movie's sad, right? Because, uh, I mean, we're I mean, talking about. Yeah, so I mean, we're talking sad. about the death of, you know, their oldest son who they love so much in that they loved more than the youngest. I mean, you can tell, especially with Mary Tyler Moore's character. I, I will say, um, kind of, you know, I haven't seen either movie. Blue Velvet sounds more familiar than Ordinary People. I love Blue Velvet. Um, I love Ordinary People. But. I know that that's a that's a trope in the '80s. Uh, you know, if if a household has, you know, two children, mm. one is quote unquote loved more than the other. Um, As with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, right? I was gonna say Dead Poets Society. Oh, uh, oh, you're giving me shit for that. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say Dead Poets Society. I, I mean, gonna, well, I was gonna say Dead Poets Society. <laughs> It's an ASMR for it. Anyway, uh, that's but, so you know, stupid. You know, like with Ferris Bueller, which we'll we'll get to next week. Next uh, week, yep. You know, Ferris is the younger brother. Jeannie's the older sister. And right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. I always felt like Ferris was younger, but anyway, you know, Jeannie can't get away with anything because their parents love Ferris. I mean, they don't outright say it, but you get the they feeling that yeah, they I, love Ferris they are, more. They are more trustworthy with Ferris, which is crazy because it's the opposite. It, Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, they should be. They should trust Jeannie more. <laughs> We're not talking about this today. Or or, or Shauna, as as her friends call her. Shauna. Um, uh, but no, I, I know that's a, that's a trope in the eighties. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, I couldn't tell you why. I would need to think about it more and do some research. Um, we'll it have might to, have to do with the economic time. I don't. I don't know. I, no, I couldn't tell. No. We. I think. I think for that we would have to do a whole true episode of like deep dive into 80s culture since we were not alive in the 80s that is true we are very young um <laughs> so anyway so so you definitely so you were saying that you uh, yeah we so, definitely see that with mary tyler moore right we do and um you know it's it's a powerful dynamic between all three mm-hmm. and it's just it's detrimental to the family as a whole okay just how they all treat one another you know, and Blue Velvet is sort of the same thing. In, mm-hmm. Instead of a family, it's a community. Okay. Right? This community, you know, not really as a whole, but certain facets in the community. I mean, there's some really dark stuff going on. Okay. You know, especially when Dennis Hopper's character is introduced. His name is Frank Booth, I believe. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing if that was right? Um <laughs> He yeah, his famous I, I, scenes. I have it, I have it pulled up. Frank Booth, so close. Woo! That was close. Okay, I think I said Frank Booth. Anyway, uh, you so, said Fred. So he has this like oxygen tank looking thing that he mm-hmm. carries with him, and it's filled with God knows what. But he puts that uh, that plastic mask up to his face. He breathes it in, and he's ready to go. He, I mean, God knows, right? <laughs> We're not meant to know what's in it. No one cares what's in it. Um, but like like any Lynch film, mm-hmm. it's partly surreal. Okay. It's dark. It's you know, um, it's sort of a noir, sort of like a neo noir because we're trying to solve this mystery. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the movie starts with Kyle McLaughlin finding a ear oh, in, in, in this person's lawn in the grass. Um, so I highly recommend both of these films. They do have these these sort of similar themes without throughout the films. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to get too far into it because Ordinary People is amazing. I don't want to ruin anything. And of course, I don't want to ruin anything with Blue Velvet. Okay. We would have to do a whole episode on Blue Velvet just so I could, you know, ruin it for everybody. Okay. Um, but anyway, and I can't, and just an addendum to my list, I can't do The Vanishing. I didn't get a chance to watch it last night because of the stuff. So no. um, we'll probably do an episode on The Vanishing later or something. I don't know. Okay. I'll find a way to shoehorn it into this thing. <laughs> Rain, go ahead. All right. So, uh, so my next film, technically, I didn't, re- I forgot i should have just said i should wait for for next week because this one is technically a coming of age but the reason i want to talk about it now is because i feel like it does work with the drama aspect considering it is based on a stephen king novella uh which is stand by me which the novella is called the body uh Listen, anything you tell me about Stephen King, I already know that. I know. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have been a Stephen King fan since I was eight years old. I, you've mentioned, I think, multiple times on mic. I just, I love <laughs> everything Stephen King has ever done. He can do no wrong. Um, Stephen King, buddy, I love you. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, but no, I, I felt like it was, I felt like it was... Uh, okay to mention during the the drama just because i mean there is in my opinion there is a lot of drama that happens in in this movie uh so it's 1986 uh rob reiner um you know because the 80s was belonged to rob reiner you know we had stand you know stand by me princess bride uh i don't know what you do i'm playing a guitar for this is spinal tap (laughs) Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. Um, but Very yeah, good, Sally. No, you're doing great. Um, and I, I'd like to point out, uh, so like I said off mic, I've been rewatching New Girl, mm-hmm. and I love the fact that her dad is played by Rob Reiner. Yeah, it's Rob, yeah I love Rob Reiner. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I remember uh, I remember the first time I ever saw this film. It is because I'd already seen um, Goonies at this point when I finally saw Stand By Me. So I knew who Corey Feldman was. Mm-hmm. Um, I never knew who uh, River Phoenix was. Um, Shame on you. I know. And, I, and I've and i even seen um, the, the... I don't like it and I'm not going to talk about it very much, but uh, The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade because River Phoenix plays... Yeah. Young Indiana Jones. Yeah. I don't like that movie. It's what? It's the worst. Well, no, it is the second worst oh my God. of those movies. Are we about to uh, <laughs> physically fight each other right now? Because okay. The Last Crusade is amazing. No, Temple of Doom is amazing. You're Temple of Doom of is the mind. best one. You're completely out of your mind. Okay, run down really quickly. The worst one is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. We both agree on that. We're not even counting that one. Because that one... We're talking original trilogy right now. Okay. Best one is a tie between Raiders and the Temple of Doom. That's crazy. You're insane. Temple of Doom is the best one. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, look. The reason why The Last Crusade gets a pass, and I'm not saying I dislike the movie. It's a pass. 
Wow. No, I'm not saying that I dislike the movie. I love. I like the movie. Mm-hmm. The reason why it gets a pass is because it has Sean Connery in it. Oh my god. And him and Harrison Ford play off each other so well. This is insane. Anyway, <laughs> um, and then uh, Will. <laughs> You're and then uh, Will Wheaton, um, which I'm going to be 100 honest. I never knew that was Will Wheaton until I just read it right now. Wow. Uh, I I feel trash, like a garbage person, because I didn't know that was fucking Will Wheaton as Gordy. Um, because he, I would say he's definitely one of the few actors who doesn't look like he did as a child. Um, I Again, you're out of your mind. He looks exactly the same. Okay, well, whatever. It doesn't matter. All right, so. Oh, and, and also uh, Jerry Connolly. Uh as a uh, as 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 yeah, Tits the fact McGee from Stand here. By Me is married to Rebecca Romaine, <laughs> so that's crazy. Uh, Do you anyway, remember who that is? Rebecca no. Romaine. Yeah, uh, she was uh, the first Mystique, right? That is correct. Um. Anyway, so <laughs> Stand By Me. <laughs> uh, can't believe this is happening. Right? The whole film centers around these four friends. Um. Corey Feldman, Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, and Jerry Connolly. I don't remember their characters' names, even though I, I just looked uh, at Gordy, Will Wheaton's character. Anyway, they're four best friends. Um, River Phoenix, of course, is the the bad boy of the group. No one can see me air quoting, quote unquote. Oh, I mean, and in real life too. Yeah. What a cool guy. Anyway, I mean, he, he OD'd outside of Johnny Depp's uh, club, the Viper Room. The Viper Room, yeah. Which uh, my mom and Scott have hats. Like legit, like actual hats that they made and sold for the Viper Room. Like I don't know how the fuck they found those. Does but the Viper Room not exist anymore? I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Okay. Man. Anyway, anyway, moving on. Um, then we have uh, Corey Feldman, who's the. Um, I'm only going to use this analogy because I've, I was just watching it as you saw when you came in. He's like the Richie of the group from It. Yeah. You know. Well, he's mouth. That's what he is. He's mouth. He's he's mouth in both movies. Um, then we have Jerry Connolly, who's as I I don't know if anyone caught. I call him Tits McGee because he's the fat guy of the group. Oh boy, poor Jerry Connolly in his first role. And then Will Wheaton Gordy is kind of like the sh- like the straight laced friend. You know, he doesn't do anything wrong, but these are his three best friends. He's gonna do whatever he wants. You know, he these are his friends. Um, and so they're all hanging out one day. In their in their clubhouse, uh, playing poker as twelve year old boys do, smoking cigarettes. Of course, as twelve year old boys do in the fifties. Yeah, right. This takes place in the fifties. It sure does. Fifty nine. Yes. Um, and it's uh, it's Corey Feldman who mentions like, yeah, there's a dead body. Right. It's Corey Feldman or Jerry Connolly. No, it was Jerry Connolly. Jerry Connolly. Because in the flashback, he's hiding underneath the porch and he hears Kiefer Sutherland talking about it. Um, oh. Son of Donald Sutherland. Yes. We just talked about Donald. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Uh, dude, and we could do a whole episode on the, the fucking Lost Boys, man. My dad would really like that, and so would Joel <laughs> Schumacher, because it's his movie as well. Bullshit. No, I never serious. knew that. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, anyway. Excuse me while I physically fight Wayne <laughs> right now. All on screen. Go ahead. Anyway. Okay. Stand by me. Stand by me. So Jerry Connolly tells them all, like, you know, do you want guys, you guys want to see a dead body? I heard that, you know, this kid from their town was walking along the train tracks and he got hit by a train. 
and it carried his body, and now it's dumped out over here. You guys want to go see it? And as 12-year-old boys do in 1959, they're like, you know what? Yeah, let's let's go do this. So they all pack up. They all give lies to their parents, right? Like they're just going to go camping or some Mm -hmm. shit. And, you know, apparently the 50s were just a very lax time to be alive (laughs) because they're like, okay, kids, have fun. Like... Yeah, they go to, like, what would be considered to us would be, like, we're going to go walk to, like, Big Spring. Yeah. Or, like, La Mesa. Or yeah, they shit. definitely cross a state line at some point. For sure. Um, and uh, River Phoenix's character, like, hooks him up with a gun. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? That's what's up. Um, but, you know, uh, like I mentioned, it is a coming of age. So these four 12-year-olds are walking into the unknown to go find this dead body to go see it. Um, and, you know, they they encounter so many things, uh, you know, like the, the junkyard happens to be one of my favorite scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they encounter a junkyard because they, they, they've heard that the owner has trained his dog, his guard dog, to <laughs> whenever whenever there's trespassers to attack the trespassers, and specifically attack them in the genitals by saying a phrase: "Chopper suck balls." No, uh, eat ball. Ah, oh, God, I just ruined that. <sighs> I ruined that, man. I because I know as soon as I said it, I. You know, I'd feel bad for you if you had liked um, Last Crusade, but since you don't like Last Crusade, I do. I just said I hell. do like Last Crusade. It's, it's just insane. not my favorite Indiana Jones movie. You're absolutely out of your mind. Anyway, so anyway, something with balls. It's no, sick chopper balls. sick balls. Chopper sick balls. God damn it! I knew yeah. we were going to get there. Anyway, oh boy. So of course they have to cross this uh, junkyard to get to where they're going. Because otherwise, this wouldn't be a story, and the movie would be over in thirty minutes. Um, and you know, the owner knows Corey Feldman because when they mention Corey Feldman's character, his dad is physically abusive, and his dad actually burned his ear because he holds his head on the the stove, right? And so he holds his head on the stove, and it burns his ear. Which, in I don't know if you ever caught it in the confrontation of that scene. I guess Corey Feldman like jerks around too much because the prosthetic disappears. Oh no! Because you know Corey wears a full prosthetic over his ear, and then it, it's gone, and his ear's fine. Huh. Never <laughs> so, noticed that. Yeah. Anyway, and so they they keep going on, and they're and you know they're dealing with problems that twelve year old boys shouldn't be dealing with. You know, because River Phoenix mentions how. As soon as we're done with school, I'm out of here. I'm, you know, like already thinking about moving because his parents are also abusive, but they're not really present. So he doesn't really... <laughs> River's so cool. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Well, we still have his brother, you know, Joaquin. Joaquin. Uh, as mentioned, you know, he's going to be the new Joker movie. Anyway, um, and, you know, another good scene is when they're walking on the train tracks mm-hmm. and they uh, almost get hit by a train. And just barely make it. Um, and then, you know, they encounter leeches because they go swimming in a river. And uh, doesn't, isn't Gordy have a, a leech on his penis? Yeah. And it makes him faint because he, he pulls the leech off and his hand's covered in blood. And he's just like, and 
passes out in yeah. front of everyone. Wouldn't you? I would actually be more like, like I would probably scream and be like, oh my god! Um, but they, but unbeknownst to them, Kiefer Sutherland and his gang have been kind of following them. Uh, of course, we don't know that till the very end of the movie. But um, they finally make it to the body. And that's when Kiefer Sutherland and his gang show up. And why, again, were they going to see the body? The I don't... bullies. And there was a reward, I think. Oh, uh, that's right. And, yeah, and since they're assholes, they didn't care. They just wanted the reward. Um, and so they get into a physical altercation because, like Jeremy mentioned, they're bullies and they just happen to pick on these kids. They're bullies in a Stephen King movie or a Stephen King story, which means they're horrible people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Almost, uh, you know, this is 1982 for Stephen King. He hadn't he has he hasn't written it yet, had he? I mean, I'm sure he was working on it. it was a, that was a four year book, he right? He does um, multiple things at the same time. Anyway. But yeah, so they get into a physical altercation and Gordy pulls... He pulls the gun, doesn't he? And threatens like, I'll, I'll shoot you too. You know, we just wanted to see the body and Kiefer Sutherland uh, apparently takes the hint that uh, we're not going to fuck around with these kids anymore. So they all... Because they all want see the body together, right? They turn the body over and they all just kind of look at it. Mm-hmm. And then they all decide to go their separate ways. Well, back home. They go their separate ways. <laughs> so they all travel back home. And, you know, older gear, older Gordy narrates the movie. And he's Played talk- by whom? Do you know? Uh, Don't look it up. Uh, oh, God, I don't know who. It's Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I actually saw it as soon as you said, don't look it up, but I, <sighs> I wanted to spare your feelings. <laughs> can't believe you looked it up. It's anyway. Richard, it's obviously Richard Wright. <laughs> anyway, so um, so he's t- saying, like, what happened to each of the members, which I'm going to be honest, I don't remember. Um, do you remember what happens to when the older version? Yeah, let's see. Uh, I was going to look it up. Uh, this is a uh, riveting listening. Holy shit. Sorry, I am so sorry. Um, they uh, they live in Castle Rock. Yeah. What the fuck? I'm so sorry. Lots of Stephen King characters live in Castle Rock. I know. So is Shawshank Prison. And Jesus Christ. Okay. Anyway, um, the President Gordy explains that Chris later went to college. Chris is River Phoenix. Became a lawyer, and while attempting to break up a fight, was stabbed to death. Um, ah, poor River. I know. Um, but yeah, no, I, this was a very different movie for me because I remember the first time seeing it with my mom. Um, like I said, at that point, I'd already seen Goonies, so I knew who Corey Feldman was. I didn't know the rest of these guys. Mm-hmm. And it was so different. And I feel like it... I, I want to say it was my first exposure to Stephen King. Um, Probably was. Because I hadn't, I don't believe I'd seen the uh, made-for-TV movie it yet. I know I definitely hadn't seen The Shining yet. Um, so it was, it was definitely my first exposure. And as a twelve-year-old myself, I believe when I first saw this film, um, it didn't really hit home for me. But it was like, wow, like 
Like, anything could kind of happen, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I would like to say that I, I, I do like the title that Rob Reiner chose mm-hmm. from B.B. King's song uh, or Benny King's song, um, Stand By Me. Because I feel like if it was called The Body, people would have probably thought it was a horror movie, mm-hmm. maybe. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, he is synonymous with horror films. Yeah. But uh, so that is my second film. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I have two more. Okay. I only have one more. Okay, cool. Um, well, then we'll end with me, then. Um, <laughs> all right. I'll give you a choice. You want to kick off the 80s or end the 80s? I mean, let's, let's kick it off, then. All right, let's kick it off. Well, look at that. Another Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> but he hates this one, so uh, here we the, go. Uh, um, this one. Yeah, that's right. Um the reason I bring it up... <laughs> I'm sure most people know probably what you're about to say. Yeah. Um, so the reason I bring this one up, obviously, it's 1980s Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. The Shining, yes. Um, it is loosely based on the Stephen King uh, novel of the same name. Um, and it is very Kubricky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I love Stanley Kubrick, and I love... Um, it. So I put it in dramas because I wanted to shoehorn this movie in here. Uh, <laughs> well, and it's not really a horror per se. It's. It, I mean, it's a psychological horror. So it is essentially a family drama, yeah. right? Um, set in a haunted hotel with cabin fever introduced, and you're on your way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he takes a lot of the family drama out of this movie, right? Yeah, I, I, um, I've been listening to the book on audiobook. Oh, yeah. Um, because I saw, I finally saw the film. Um, loved it. Thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to know the differences, and yeah, definitely in the book... I mean, where, gigantic differences. Yeah, when I, when I, in the book, you, where I'm at now, I haven't finished it yet, but where I'm at now, like, yeah, I can already tell there's been a lot of family drama with mm-hmm. uh, uh, Wendy and um, Jack. Yeah. And, like, how she almost left him when he hurt Danny in right. the book. Mm-hmm. But you don't really get that. A lot of the family drama stuff, which is what King really focuses on in the book um, is in the miniseries. So if you've uh, seen the miniseries with I want to see Steven it. Weber, it's great. I'm a big fan. I love it. I, um, I only, actually saw that one first. I'm only going to so. say, say this. Um, I think you're in the minority. I think a lot of people hate that. The miniseries? Yes. I say I love the miniseries. I was, you know that's why? Because I, I love Stephen King and <laughs> he wrote it. So And he wrote the, the miniseries too. Okay. Anyway. As, so... so my dad also likes it. My my dad could beat you up. So I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not like a competition or anything. But like anyway, he likes it anyway. So anyway, um, the reason I wanted to bring it up because it's our eighties. It's our eighties yeah. series, and this movie defines the eighties. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, this really kicked off the nineteen eighties, and it. I mean, it kicked it off with a bang because I mean, this movie's crazy. Oh yeah. right. It takes what. Kubrick did with 2001 which I mean wasn't I mean these weren't back to back I mean he did a few films in between this Mm -hmm. but like he did Barry Lyndon in between this 
I, I don't need to do this anyway. <laughs> uh, what he took with 2001, and he stuck these sort of these techniques, these tropes, and smacks it into this horror setting. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely bright. I love the the quick cuts with um, with Jack killing uh, Dick Halloran. Yeah. With quick cuts, like sort of Exorcist style of Danny's face, mm-hmm. right? Because not only is he is he seeing this because you know Dick and him have this connection with the shining, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's, I mean, it's bright anyway. Um, love that. I didn't love the documentary, which I know you've seen. Oh yes. Uh, Cause I was really hoping we would, we would talk. I didn't like bit. that. It, it's, that is by far the most mountain out of molehill thing I've ever seen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they are reading way too much into this. Oh, I don't feel like, Kubrick faked the moon landing. I don't oh, think Kubrick was like giving meta commentary on the Native Americans of the. It, it's crazy. I don't believe any of that at all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like, I remember we, me and Ashley watched something where they brought that documentary up, and we we're like, you know what? Let's take a look at that. Let's let's watch that because me and Ashley like watching documentaries about like really kind of. Uh, like a cultural phenomenon or something like that. And so I figured, okay, it would be pretty cool. And then when it starts with Eyes Wide Shut. Which I love, by the way. We could do a whole episode on Eyes Wide Shut. And that was, that was kind of towards the end of Stanley's It was the last life. movie he finished, yeah. Yeah. Because he started AI, mm-hmm. but then got sick and, and died. Anyway. Yeah, so we're seeing Eyes Wide Shut actually through the majority of this documentary. Yeah, they do mention it a lot, um, from what I remember. Well, and they show pretty much the whole movie in the fucking as they're talking about The Shining, and as, as we're as we're you know as the documentary's going, I mean, actually, like oh, okay, like all right. but then when they get to the moon stuff, we're like, what? What the fuck? Like, oh, Danny's wearing a shirt that says NASA on it. That's. Ugh. That's that's an indication right there. <laughs> oh, and, and then the biggest thing that got me—it's Apollo Eleven, by the way. Yeah, the biggest thing that got me was the fucking carpet design. Like I thought the carpet design had no meaning. It was just, it, you know, you know, it's it's unique and it's iconic. I mean, now it's iconic. Exactly. But, yeah. You know, it's it's bold, and you know, I feel like it's again. I I don't like reading too much into stuff. I know that. <laughs> Filmmakers do things on purpose. Oh, and, and Stanley Kubrick, you know, did made, things on purpose. Yeah, and made he, a name for himself that it, it, it was on purpose. It's yeah. so in everything Kubrick does is so intentional, right? Yeah, like the, like the the. Uh, I do know the, this one that like with the beetle that they drive mm-hmm. is yellow, but in the book it's red, and you see a red beetle flipped on the side of the road when Dick Halloran's going back to the hotel, and that I know everyone agreed like yeah that was meant as a like a fuck you. Stephen King. Pretty much. He was kind of like, you know what? I digged the book, but I'm going to do my thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is my version of this. And it really is. I mean, this is Stephen, <laughs> this is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. That's why it doesn't say Stephen King's name on it. Yeah. Because it only, yeah, you only know that Stephen King is in the credits. He says right. based on Stephen, the novel by Stephen King. I mean, all of that should be in quotes, but <laughs> in, the, in the credits, because it's, I mean, a lot of it's different. We're talking, there is no hedge maze 
mm-hmm. in the book. Yeah. It's hedge animals, mm-hmm. and, and they come to life at the end, and blah blah blah. And there's a, a rogue court. That's right. Which we don't know about in the movie. No, he uses an axe in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he uses a, a, a not a mallet, a rope mallet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but like something I was going to say about the carpet, like in the documentary, they say how like <laughs> it's supposed to symbolize like a a rocket launch. <laughs> Because, like, at one point, Danny's facing it, and I guess the design is open, but then another shot, it's closed or some shit. And I'm I don't like, know. It's crazy. I, I know. It's... <laughs> fuck? And they've played with over... I mean, this is... Guys, listening to this, I'm telling you this is 100% true. I know it sounds crazy, but someone has done it. What they did was they overlapped the films, one going backwards, one going forwards. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. And... And it, it's like, and when I say overlapped, I mean literally the two prints are overlapped with each other and shown at the same time. One playing backwards, the other playing forwards. Right, and seeing where they meet up and blah, 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 blah. It's so stupid. Anyway, yeah, like it one doesn't per- make any sense. Yeah, like one person was like, yeah, like at this point, because they talk about it in the documentary too. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, yeah, at one point, you know, Jack's face is in the TV. Like, it's like, of course it is. Like, that explains why he doesn't like TV. Like, what? These are, these are translucent <laughs> oh celluloid cells being tacked on top of one another. Yeah, things are going to coincidentally match, match. up. <laughs> Duh, you oh idiots. Oh, they're so stupid. And they never showed their faces, those cowards. They were... <laughs> Everything was voiceover in that documentary. No one showed who they were. Yeah, they, they showed set pictures from The Shining. They showed yeah. scenes from The Shining. But they never cut to a talking head, and that makes them cowards. Anyway, <laughs> um, back to The Shining. So after my rant of Room 237, which honestly I'll probably watch again just because it's it's a good representation of what – film studies can do and how film studies can go wrong. Right. And I think this is a good it's it's a good representation of both those things. I think people had good points, but most of them had terrible points. Yeah, the majority of them are wrong. Like like the whole thing with the, the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Like because there's one line where they mentioned that it was built on an Indian burial ground, mm-hmm. the the Overlook Hotel. I honestly don't remember that being in the book either. But I don't think I don't think so either. Because there is a whole chapter in the book on Overlook history that Dad and I skipped. <laughs> Are you saying we did? We're just like skip. Listen, I I dig the creativity, I dig the commitment, but I don't have time. It sounds like a textbook. Good job. It's boring like a textbook. I'm gonna skip it. You know what I mean? Um, anyway, whatever. So the shining. So every like I was saying earlier, everything. Kubrick does is deliberate. It mm-hmm. was the second time we really got to see what a steady cam can do. Oh yeah, uh, which is during the let's follow Danny on his big wheel mm-hmm. through, the through the halls. Always, yep. Uh, we first saw what a steady cam could do in Halloween with uh, John Carpenter in the opening scene where we are we are Michael Myers in POV, right? Mm-hmm. It's absolutely amazing, and it's seamless, and it's great. Um, And so what – both horror movies, right? Mm -hmm. But what um, Kubrick decided to do with that was let's 
let's get people to almost fall off their chair because they're on the edge of it. You know what I mean? Because right. it's like he's turning corners and we don't know what the fuck, right? And one of the greatest scares in the movie is the twins. He rounds that corner and there they are, mm-hmm. right? And it's brilliant. Um, I know this is the drama episode and I'm sorry, <laughs> but I really wanted to mention that I love The Shining, right? Either... I, either way, right? <laughs> either the Stanley Kubrick one or the Mick Garris, Stephen King one. Uh, these things are 17 years apart. Uh, one was 1980, one was 1997. Um, I Either way, I love it. Uh, I've been to the, to the Stanley Hotel twice. Um, vacationed there twice. Once when I graduated high school, once when I graduated college. Jesus Christ. Uh, it is one of my favorite places in the world. Did I you stay it. in room 217? No. it's it, That thing's booked for years in advance. Why, though? Like, I don't... Well, number one, it's a huge room. Number two, that's the room Stephen King stayed in. Number t- three, it's the room Jim Carrey stayed in when they did Dumb and Dumber. Um, when they're in Aspen, they're really mm-hmm. in Estes Park, Colorado, and they're uh, staying at the Stanley Hotel. Okay. Um, and that's where he got the idea for the setting. I mean, he had the idea of – sorry, this just became the Stephen King podcast, which I would love, by the way. Can we just do that? Anyway. Uh, I mean, It Chapter 2 is about to be out. and you know, Yeah, we could do a Stephen King episode. I definitely want to talk about that. But anyway. All right. So he had the general idea of what could I do – what would my son have to do for me to want to kill him, right? So he had the idea with the Carey manuscript. He had written it, but his son, I forgot which one. He has a lot. <laughs> he has Joe. He's got Owen. He's got, I don't know, he's got a bot. Um, was coloring on it. Uh-huh. And he was so mad. He worked so hard on that, on that book, right? Uh-huh. And this kid's coloring all over it, you know? He's so mad he could kill him. And then he thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> what what situation would I have to be in for that to happen, right? Uh-huh. And then he started thinking. The wheels were turning. Then he went on vacation. And back then, the Stanley Hotel was actually open, um, was actually only open during the fall. And they would close during winter. And I'm assuming that's now they're, they're now open year-round. Yeah, they are open year-round now. Okay. Uh, but then that is true. So when... <laughs> Both in both versions of that, and even in the book, that's true at the time. Yeah. That they would close and have someone take care of the place while it was closed. Um, because the snow was so bad. Right. Mm-hmm. That being said, they showed up the last week before they closed, and they were the only people there. And they happened to get this room 217. They stayed in it. And Some weird shit was going on. I was on. about to say, wasn't Stephen, like, didn't Stephen say that he was getting a lot of weird dreams and I mean there yeah there was some weird stuff going on because the place is haunted anyway um if you believe in that sort of thing which I do of course <laughs> well yeah um it's got a really crazy history with you know deaths and blah 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 um <laughs> and so he was like this is it what if I was stuck here with my family all winter that's it and so then he wrote the book he finally had a setting right mm-hmm. and so and, of course, he's had trouble with alcoholism and drug use, and so he could add that in, no problem, you know, and off we went. Yep. And um, what Kubrick got right was the isolation and the the sort of paranoia and cabin fever-esque 
mm-hmm. things that happen when you're all by yourself all the time and you can't leave. Right. Right. That's what cabin fever is. And so that's what he got right. And that's that's pretty cool. And I like the movie a lot. 1980. <laughs> the Shining. Um, I have a sidebar before yeah. before we move on. Do have you seen one? the deep fakes where someone put Jim Carrey's Jim face, Carrey's face yes, over Jack that. Nicholson? It looks great. I don't know how they do that. Uh, that's nuts. That's, that's like Photoshop, but with vis- video with video images. That's weird. That's like, uh, I mean, that's like with. Um, I don't mean. I know. I just mentioned Endgame, but I'm going to do it again. Oh, boy. Here like we go. when when uh, 2023 Cap fights 2012 Cap, the 2012 Cap's helmet is mm-hmm. CGI'd on mm-hmm. because apparently test audiences found it confusing that they both didn't have oh. Like, there wasn't a way to distinguish who was who. Mm-hmm. So, because, you know, at the end of the first Avengers, Cap didn't have his helmet on. He, right. He had it off. So, anyway, sidebar. But, wow. yeah. <laughs> Another way you talk about Endgame. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. It's Love a good that movie. Hey, what's your last one? So, my last one. Um, probably... It probably would be my... It probably is my favorite... Of the of the three movies I've mentioned, neat. As nineteen eighty nine, tail end of eighties drama, with uh, my boy Kevin Costner. And that's Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. Um, I would like that makes you want to call your dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's it like, really, Dad, I love you. I'm so sorry. I know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Holy shit! Such a good movie. Yeah, like it's. Like, Kevin Costner is just the man anyway. He can do no wrong. He's Dances with Wolves, which Meh. now that I say it, why didn't I mention Dances with Wolves? You know what? I don't know. But you know what? Too late. I know. Yeah. We're, <laughs> just kidding. We're at, a, we're at an hour and 30, uh, hour and 20 minutes. So Not bad. Not yet. Not bad. Um, anyway, but so so if anyone hasn't seen this movie, like, <sighs> it's so good. It's so it's about Kevin Costner. Um, I don't remember his character's name. Yeah. Um, he he start the movie and see something that I love about the movie is they just throw you into it. No no build. They just throw you into it. I mean, you get some narration from Kevin at the beginning of the movie, but then after that, we're off. Mm-hmm. We're going. So you know, he talks about how you know he. Uh, I think he talks about his high school at the beginning of it. And then he mentions how he met his wife and then they had a kid and then they moved to Montana, Iowa, someplace has corn and he became a, a farmer. And then that's where things go. So that's, that, I mean, literally it's like five minutes of narration and then we're going and he's out in the field checking things and he starts hearing a voice if you build it they will come mm-hmm. and he's like uh, you know he's thinking someone's playing a prank on him you know he even tells his wife like were you out in the field today messing with me and she's like no what are you talking about and so he goes out to the field again and he hears it again if you build it they will come and he has this vision of building a baseball diamond and he tells his wife, like, I have to do it. I, I have to do this. And she she doesn't really understand why he has to do it. But because his wife 
uh, okay, I'm gonna look it up because I I need to know her name. Okay. Annie, uh, because Annie is the best wife. She supports it. She's like, yeah. she's like, okay, you know, but you you're kind of killing our livelihood here. But if this is what you need to do, I get it. Do it. Can I tell you the best part about this movie is that it's a baseball movie. I love baseball yeah. movies. Baseball is awesome. I love baseball. It's America's I love pastime. Baseball America's pastime. Yeah, I mean that's not why I like it. I just like it. <laughs> I like it. You know what I mean? I don't like football, but I like. Yeah, I mean, I can I, like I can baseball. follow baseball more than I can follow football. I love baseball. Anyway, anyway it's a baseball movie. Go ahead. Uh, so he plows plows over the majority of his cornfield, builds a you know a baseball diamond, and he's. He's out there one night, and he's like, you know, what did I do? I just I, I screwed us out of our livelihood. What did I do? And then he notices someone walk out of the, the cornfield, which is Shoeless Joe, played by Ray Liotta. And he's kind of like, you're, you're Shoeless Joe. Like, you died in the 40s. Why are you in my cornfield? And Shoeless Joe pretty much says, like, you know, I heard there was a baseball diamond. I'm, I don't think that's the line. <laughs> 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 but it pretty much is like, you know, I'm here to play baseball. And so he, you know, throws the ball around with Shoeless Joe. And next morning, Kevin. Okay, I need to look up his name, too. Ray. Okay, his character's name is Ray. Uh, tells his wife, like, Shoeless Joe came out of the cornfield, like, and we played ball. Like, what the hell? <laughs> so his wife doesn't believe him. and Of course. Of course. I mean, because he's talking about ghost, a ghost baseball player coming out of the cornfield. That's right. Um, and then um, then she get he gets her to believe it, if I remember correctly, because then he brings her out one night and the whole team comes out of the cornfield, right? I'm going to say yes. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. And then so she kind of believes it. Like, holy shit, like, there's ghosts in our cornfield coming to play baseball. And, you know, and he, he the whole time, you know, his brother-in-law is telling him, like, Ray, you you plowed over your cornfield. Like, the and his, his brother-in-law is a banker, isn't he? I, I don't remember. I think he is. To be honest, I've seen this movie once because it <laughs> destroyed me at the end. And I was like, I don't want to do that again. Oh, dude. Just wait, man. Oh, God. <laughs> it just kills me at the we're, end. I was we're like, probably going to have to pause and, and be like, calm down. And like, sob my eyes out? Yeah. I'll do it on my own. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, so so his brother-in-law is like, you know, Ray, you screwed yourself. There's no way you can pay for the the house now. What are you going to do? And, he's, and Ray, the whole time, the whole movie, Ray is just calm. He's like, don't worry, we'll be fine. Yeah. You know, and then he gets another vision where he needs to go and find uh, Lawrence Fishburne. No, not Lawrence Fishburne. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. I am a garbage human being. <laughs> Jesus Christ, James Earl Jones. Oh my god. Oh fucking hell. Oh. You can edit it out. James Earl Jones. Uh, because James Earl Jones was this very, in the movie, uh, prolific writer from the 70s that Annie and Ray knew, well, read his books. And Ray has this vision that he has to take him to a baseball game. Mm-hmm. He has to. And Annie's like, well, I don't understand why you have to go to Chicago right now. Until they realize they have the exact same dream. And she's like, 
you need to go to Chicago yeah. right now. So he goes to Chicago and he's trying to convince James Earl Jones, um, like you, you have to come with us. And his character's name is Terrence. Okay, because I needed to know. You're doing great. And he's like, you, you have to. I have to take you to a baseball game. And of course, you know. James Earl Jones' character Terrence is, you know, like I said, he was a writer from the 70s, and he thinks that uh, Kevin Costner's just here giving him, like, just giving him shit. Giving him the business. Giving him the business. Even, even with his fake gun part, you know, where he, <laughs> put, he puts his finger in his jacket pocket. Yeah. And James Earl Jones, what is that? What do you think it is? It's a gun. <laughs> and, uh, and so finally he convinces him to... To come to Wrigley Field in Chicago and go to a baseball game. And during the baseball game, they both get, like, a sign. I don't remember what the sign says. And they're like, we need to go. Because then they had to go somewhere else Mm -hmm. and recruit this dude. Oh, boy. uh, This doctor. And they, like, they go and and talk to this doctor. And they're like, hey, did you try to become a baseball player when you were younger? And he's like, yeah, that was years ago. But I've decided to become a doctor. And this is what I want to do now. And and they decide to try the next day. They're like, okay, we're going to try to convince him tomorrow. Let's let him think on it. But then they get report that he died, oh, which ugh, what a, what a shame. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're like, well, what are we going to do? So they start to head back and they pick up a hitchhiker and they're like, Oh, you know, what's your name kid? And it's the doctor, but he's a, uh, he's, already been reincarnated well not really reincarnated but he's a ghost of his younger self yeah and he's like yeah you know I'm gonna try out for a baseball team and they're like oh shit and so they drive back to Iowa and uh, he practices with the um, uh, the team and this whole time like Ray and Annie are have they're not really having problems but they're having problems with the bank paying their bills you know, his nosy brother-in-law is not leaving him alone. Typical. And then all of a sudden, um, his daughter, uh, she falls off the bleachers, right? Yeah. Because uh, his daughter can see the, the baseball players as well. And she's eating popcorn or something, right? I don't remember. I just remember she falls off the bleachers and she starts choking. And they don't know what to do. But all of a sudden, young ghost of the doctor... I don't know his character's name. Um, almost has like this urge, like I have to go help this little girl. And he steps over the white line of the baseball diamond, and he kind of ages into the, his full-fledged doctor form. This is like anime right here. <laughs> I don't get that reference. And uh, and pretty much saves Ray's life, uh, Ray's daughter's life, and Ray's like, you know, what are you gonna do now? You you're outside the diamond. You, you can't go back. And he's pretty much tells him like, this is, I chose this. Like I, this is what I wanted to do. And then that's when his brother-in-law sees the team and his brother-in-law's like, you, you can't, don't get rid of this Ray. You have to keep this. And because the whole point of this is that they're going to have James Earl Jones character go with the team to the other side. Mm -hmm. And he, when he comes back, he's going to write about it. And people are going to come to their house to see the the ghost baseball players play baseball, and you think that that's the whole point of this movie, and then oh. and then comes the Pepsi twist. So 
you're thinking, okay, our characters are off, you know. James Earl Jones has gone with the team to the other side to see the other side, to come back and write about it. The money will come. Everything's great. And so Kevin Costner's standing out on – I will always remember this scene. And I'm pretty sure you yeah. remember it too. Because the whole – I'm going to go and say it because the whole movie, Kevin Costner keeps mentioning his dad and how he never really had an opportunity to – play catch with his dad because he never really knew his dad his dad yeah me either dad his his dad died his dad died didn't he Mm -hmm. and uh, so he never had an opportunity because he never really knew his dad and so he's standing on the on the diamond and ray liotta comes out and he's like you know ray you did a good thing here you know you know you but you didn't do exactly what you were told to do and he's like what are you saying you know I was told to build it and they will come. And he's like, no, 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 build it and he will come. And he, and that's, and he's, I just remember because he turns around and that's all he says. And he leaves. And Kevin Costner is like, well, who will come? What, who, what are you saying? And the catcher of the team ter- stands up and turns and takes off his mask and is like, oh, so, so you're the guy who did this. And obviously, this guy doesn't really know who Kevin Costner is. And Kevin Costner knows that's his dad. <sighs> Uh, and um, oh yeah, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> and so he asks him like, you know, before you go, do you want to do you want to play catch? And and the movie ends with him playing catch with his dad, oh, which was the whole point of the movie to begin with. the The subplot of them getting money was just to make sure that they were set. The whole plot was him to play catch with his dad man oh, that uh, kills me every time I know it's it, so sad it makes me think it's of, so happy it makes me think of the episode of uh, How I Met Your Mother where Robin admits that she didn't like Field of Dreams yeah. and all the guys of the group were just like what <laughs> and and Barney's like can, can we please change the subject now <laughs> Um, but yeah, so if anyone hadn't seen or heard of Field of Dreams... Well, first off, it's ruined. Yeah, I just ruined it for you. But it is it is well worth the watch because it is a drama. I think one of the few dramas that has a very satisfying twist at the end of it. Because, you know, like with M. Night Shyamalan and, and his Pepsi twists. Like with, um, with Split... The twist of that split was uh, the twist of split was it's the only reason I liked the movie was uh, the Bruce Willis was in it and and that it was a uh, part of this larger universe that, yeah, that it was unbreakable that's yeah. the only reason I liked Split at well, all because well that's because Split welcome back to the Split podcast <clears throat> yeah. Split just works very well on its own it it could never be a Split podcast because I would never <laughs> did you ever see Glass yeah did you like it not really. Well, I will say it did kind of have a low to it because because Unbreakable is fantastic. Unbreakable is the best. I would say it's better than Sixth Sense. Um, Split, I'd go on record saying that. Split. I just did. Also fantastic, and then Glass kind of just didn't really. It, it just plateaued out. See, I don't see. I I don't agree that Split is fantastic. Split was, it works. Okay, I think Split is pretty good. We I think we need to move on from All Split. Right. <laughs> Thank God. Um, Anyway, Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. Fantastic movie. Uh, great feel-good movie also. Because most dramas, you don't leave the you don't leave the experience feeling good about what you just saw. <laughs> uh, at least for me. When I watch dramas, which is very it's very rare 
because I don't like feeling sad the entire time, feeling sad or feeling anxious the whole, you know, the whole movie. Yeah. And most dramas that I've experienced don't have a very satisfying payoff. See, I don't like happy endings, so <laughs> I don't. I, well, I, I, I get, oh my God, can I tell you, <laughs> this is going to be a, uh, a sneak peek into a future episode. <laughs> but with the first time I saw Rick Ream for a Dream, I had the biggest smile on my face at the end because finally it, it wasn't it, a happy ending. You didn't have a happy ending? No. And I was I was so happy someone did it. Like, <laughs> we, we have a and, – and, you know, not to say that I haven't seen up until that point, you know, movies with – Without a happy ending. Right. I mean, I had, but, I mean, not to that extent. That was yeah. – I mean, over the line, and I loved it. I mean, like I said, like drama isn't my go-to genre. Um, mainly just like I said, I, I don't like leaving the experience still feeling like, wow, well, that happened. As we're with Field of Dreams, I remember the first time I watched it, it was like, I actually, I want to say I applauded, and I didn't even see it in theaters. I saw it at home. Just at your house. <laughs> when I was like 12. 12, 13, I, I applauded because yeah. it just, just it just has a feel-good ending to it. And it's it's a great thing, you know, for anyone who – and I'm going to get a little, uh, a little serious with this, you know. It's a great message for, you know, fathers and sons. Like if, if you and your dad are estranged, like life's too short to harbor hate and harbor a grudge. Just call your dad. Tell him you love him. You know. Watch Field of Dreams and call your dad. Exactly. <laughs> it's, what it, it's what it makes you do, man. Yeah. So, on to Jeremy's final My film. My final pick. All right. I'm glad you mentioned harboring hate and grudges. Because grudges, my final pick is Do the Right Thing. Okay. Uh, Spike Lee. Oh, God. So... Sorry, I gotta put the stupid headphones back on. Um, we're, we're using our headphones again, everyone. So hopefully, maybe this time it. Uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm not breathing into the mic like last time, so <laughs> hopefully I knock that off this time. So do the right thing. Not Spike Lee's first movie. He okay. did. Uh, She's got to have it in school days beforehand, but this film put him on the map. Okay. Right. 1989. Do the right thing. So. This film... Hey, both of our movies ended on 1989. 1989, I know. So, the movie is sort of a a fluid sort of narrative. It's not a strict act one, act two, act three. It's just following these characters on the hottest day of the year. And, man, you can feel the heat come off that TV. Okay. I mean... And if you were lucky enough to see it on the big screen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you're melting just watching these people out in this heat. Oh, that's so terrible. Anyway, um, we are introduced to Mookie, who is played by Spike Lee himself. Okay. Um, he is a pizza delivery boy. Um, and he works for these um, these Italians who own this pizzeria uh, in the middle. I think it's the – yeah, it's Brooklyn, obviously, because <laughs> it's Spike Lee. Okay. If it's a Spike Lee joint, some of it's going to be in Brooklyn. Right? And can I say that I looked up the poster just so I could see, kind of get an idea of what you're talking about? And yeah, it says a Spike Lee joint. And a, Spike Lee joint. They all say that. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, so if it's a Spike Lee joint, 
it's going to be in Brooklyn at least a little bit, unless it's like a period piece or a you know biopic or something. Well, um, didn't it say that on Black Landsman? Spike Lee, Julie? Yep. They all do. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Which Black Landsman was also great, but we'll get. We're not going to get there. I don't know why I said that. Um, <laughs> so, it is about the racial tensions, modern day racial tensions. So this was a big deal, okay. right? Because. Yes, we no longer have the segregations. We no longer have, you know, these sort of civil rights being taken away from the African-American community. Oh, yeah, but the 80s still was very... But it's 89, and if you think it's done, it's not. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And he has continually shown us through film that it's not over. None of this is. Mm -hmm. And so in Do the Right Thing, it is the racial tension between the the Vietnamese shop owners, between the the Italian pizzeria owners, between the African-American community that lives there in this neighborhood. Um, One of of my all-time favorite scenes in this movie is led by none other than Gus Fring himself, because this was one of his first movies. Um, he plays Buggin' Out. Okay. Is his nickname. And um, they are... <laughs> they're, they're out on the street. He's with his boys, right? He's with his buddies. Mm-hmm. And this this white guy on a bicycle scuffs up his sneakers. All right? Okay. Kind of bumps into him with the tire, scuffs up his sneaks. Right? Nah, dude. That ain't right, man. Those Jordans. Those are fresh Jordans, bro. All right? Listen, I was mad just seeing the movie. All right? I get it, man. You got to keep your kicks fresh. I understand. So (laughs) these guys all gang up on this guy. He's wearing a Larry Bird jersey, too, just to make him more white. And he's walking up. He's walking up those brownstone. And and they just keep hounding him, hounding him. Like, you know, go back to Boston. You know, I can't believe you're here. You know what I mean? Whatever. He goes, hey, man, I'm originally from Queens, and they all throw up their hands at the same time. and go, ah, you know, <laughs> like, who cares? <laughs> it's so funny. Anyway, the film is scattered with stuff like that, just with the, you get a real feel for the community, because you're not just following Mookie around. Mm-hmm. You're following everybody. Right. Uh, from Samuel L. Jackson is the DJ, uh, and you can see him, his glassed-in, you know, um, studio where you can see him do this, right? Okay. Uh, do his show. And um, everybody knows everybody, right? Uh, you got, um, I want to call her Mother Abigail, and that's not correct because she's Mother Abigail in The Stand. <laughs> uh, Ruby D uh, plays Mother Sister. Okay. Um, and she's sort of the matriarchal character of this of this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. She seems to be one of the oldest residents, and people really look up to her and whatever. And then uh, O.C. Davis plays Demare. Um, okay. He is the sort of the patriarchal, but he's not – he's always hitting on Mother Sister, by the way. Always. He's always trying to get with Mother <laughs> Sister. Okay. And Mother Sister's not having, you know, because Demare is – um, he's almost he looks like he's homeless, <laughs> and um, one of the f- most famous lines in the movie, he pulls Mookie aside. Mookie's busy, right? He's mm. got to get to work. He's got to make these deliveries, whatever. He goes, "Hey, Mookie." He goes, "What?" He goes, "Always do the right thing." And Mookie's like, "Is that it?" He goes, "That's it." He goes, "I got it. I'm gone," and he leaves. Okay. And so, racial tensions really crescendo at the death of Radio Rahim. All right. Now, Radio Rahim 
uh, is played by Bill Nunn. You've seen him in several things, I am almost certain. Um, he does the famous love-hate um, monologue from Night of the Hunter uh, with his... I, I don't know. They're not brass knuckles. <laughs> but they're rings, but they cover every finger. And one says love, one says hate, right? Um, and... You know, he's he's called Radio Rahim because he always carries his boombox around. And in in this film, his boombox plays Fight the Power by Public Enemy, which um, is like the anthem of the film, because we also have the racial tension with the cops as well. Now, eventually, the cops get into a squabble with Radio Rahim and he ends up getting killed. Right. The cops kill him. Okay. And now, I mean, it erupts, right? I mean, just the the tension breaks and people are furious. They, I mean, I'm yada yada through a lot of this movie, by the way, but (laughs) you got to see it. It's incredible. It's, it's Spike Lee's best movie by far. Okay. And that's counting Inside Man, 25th Hour, anything. All right. So, like I said, tensions break and it is, you know ignited by the death of Radio Rahim. Okay. So what Mookie does is he grabs a trash can and he walks over to the pizzeria and he throws it through the shop window. And then they, everyone proceeds to destroy the pizzeria. Okay. Okay. All right. Now the shop owner is Danny Aiello uh, and his sons, uh, Richard Edison plays Vito and of course, one of my favorite character actors of all time, John Turturro. Oh yeah, um, plays uh, Pino. Now, anyway, um, they're all watching their shop be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, did Mookie do the right thing? I'll tell you this: Spike Lee says no black person has ever asked him ever if Mookie did the right thing. Only white people ask him that. Really? Yeah. And the thing is, he did. Why? Because every white person in the vicinity would have been killed, right? Or at least mauled. Because, again, people are so outraged, right? He protected everyone by having their anger directed towards this one thing. He started it. He picked up the trash can. He threw it in the window. Everyone else proceeded. And so he saved everyone's lives. Okay. Either having them not go to jail, having them not kill anybody, having people not be pummeled to death, having them not be beat up, having them not be beaten, you know, um, by having their anger be towards to one thing. Okay. In my opinion, that's what Mookie was doing, and he did the right thing. Um, it's a remarkable movie about racism. It's a remarkable movie just about people, you know, mm-hmm. and about... Uh, different walks of life, different cultures coming together and sometimes they don't they don't mesh, right? They clash. Right. And in 1989 this was true and it's still true today. So most definitely true today. Um who knows, we don't know the motive of yesterday's mass shooting. We'll find out. because uh, the other ones have been race related, so hopefully that is not the case this time, but we'll find out. Uh, anyway, I wanted to end on do the right thing. Because, in my opinion, it's one of the greatest films of the 80s. It's one of the greatest films of all time. Oh, yeah. I mean... Do the right thing. And Spike Lee, 
you know, has a track record of making great films. Yeah. You know, and great um, race films. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I still haven't seen Black Klansman all the way through. It's really good. Um, when uh, me and Ashley were going to Orlando, mm-hmm. um, there was a gentleman in front of me watching it, an older gentleman, older white gentleman, I should mention, uh, watching it, and I was kind of peering over his shoulder the whole the whole flight to Orlando, just kind of kind of just seeing like where the move films at, kind of what's going on, yeah, because. Um, <laughs> One of the things my mom told me when she saw it, because she asked me, she's like, have you seen this yet? And I was like, no, I haven't seen it yet. I was like, I don't know if I want to see it yet. Uh, and she's like, it will, um, she was like, it will make you want to go out and kill a white person. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, was, I was like, um. It's a little extreme. But um, what the film does have is a on-screen performance a recent on-screen performance of uh, Harry Belafonte. Uh, he really? is a thousand years old. <laughs> it's like seeing Sidney Portier somewhere, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> These guys are so old. Anyway, I love uh, Harry Belafonte as I'm a huge fan of Beetlejuice, so oh, yeah. therefore I love Harry Belafonte. Oh, yeah. And uh, if anyone thinks we're going to talk about Beetlejuice over this series, uh, go back and listen to the horror episode. Yeah. I, I want to say we brought that up. I don't know. And you I already said it. I already said it. I'm not saying it again. Okay. So, <laughs> That's um, a good point. But anyway, um, I'm glad we got to end with Do the Right Thing and I'm excited to see what we do next week. Yeah. So um, we hope everyone enjoyed uh, this kind of delve into drama of the 1980s. Uh, we, you know, we had movies pretty much all throughout the 80s ranging from 1980 all the way to 1989. Um, next week will be about comedy Teen and coming of age. I believe from my list, Rain will cover the coming of age films because my list has none of that <laughs> so yeah. far. I mean, it's I'm, just strictly comedies. But I mean, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a list anyway, and I might trim that list down. Yeah, but. yeah. My list is kind. Of, I'm, I'm, I won't add to it. I think I'll keep it the same. Yeah. But all right, everyone. We hope you enjoyed, and uh, again, I hope everyone stayed safe yesterday, and we'll see you next week. 